Welcome to Madison Voices. Theater is a reflection of society and the times in which we live. We give voice to the artist's perspective on art, theater, family, and life. We want to take this time to celebrate the talent, passion, and stories of those who are part of the Madison Theater family. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Angelo Fraboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater at Malloy College. Setting the scene for today's podcast, I brought in a designer to talk about his role in realizing a script to the stage, scenic and projection designer Michael Clark. Welcome and thank you for being here with me. Hi, Angelo. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, hello, Michael. I spoke last week with Ed McCarthy uh, regarding lighting design, so I thought it would be wise to talk about scenic next. Uh, Both you and Ed have worked with me as far back as our first gala, and actually you did some shows for me off-Broadway before that time. Uh, That that opening gala, we had Martin Short. It was sort of like a evening of a dozen stars. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Not a thousand stars, but a dozen stars. You've designed for Broadway, tours, event installations, you know, specials, and dozens and dozens of shows for me here at Madison Theatre. Now, if if I'm not mistaken, you started as a stage manager, right? Um, Yeah, that's true. My training at uh, North Carolina School for the Arts, I went through the design and production program, but my concentration was in stage management. Um, I was one of those kids that sort of went through high school with the theater bug, but we didn't really have much of a program, uh, just sort of a, a drama program and a choral program. And like so many teenagers, I just thought I wanted to be an actor director. Uh, fortunately, North Carolina School of the Arts is in my hometown. And I went to the summer program to apply to see if I could get into the, uh, the acting uh, drama program. Um, and that wonderful faculty acknowledged that I had, that's true, a love of theater, but they could see that I actually was more interested in sort of what was going on on the other side, again, with that sort of directing vibe. Mm-hmm. The school didn't offer direction at that point in time, but they introduced me to the design and production school and the idea of stage management, which, of course, as we all know, the stage manager is responsible for fulfilling the artistic instruction of the director once the director leaves. And right. um, so that seemed to be an appropriate path for me to follow. And uh, I got involved with that. And, of course, I knew very little about technical theater going to school. And that stage management track actually introduced me to a whole world of uh, design opportunities and things like that that I wasn't even aware of. And uh, and that's what sort of sparked my interest in sound design, uh, scenic design, lighting design, and those in a sort of roundabout way led me to where I am today. Right. Now, did you ever work as a stage manager? I did. Um, but in just sort of a, in, in the world of corporate events. So when I got to New York, and I was uh, starting off in a, in a uh, sort of a burgeoning thing. I had an internship at Playwrights Horizons. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, and of course, that was, uh, it was fulfilling the need uh, artistically, let's say, but not necessarily the pocketbook. And uh, fortunately, I met uh, a few other people that uh, introduced me to the world of corporate events. <laughs> and uh, I was able to meet a, a great producer named Gary Gorman. And uh, Gary uh, taught me how to dress up in my suit and tie and would fly me across the country. And I would work as a corporate stage manager. And uh, that was basically how I made ends meet for many years, uh, just doing 
maybe a half a dozen jobs like that a year. And he, he had a big, uh, he, he was, uh, one of his big clients was L'Oreal Cosmetics. So he was, we'd do their big annual show and so on and so forth. And I learned a lot about beauty products. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting to know. I, I could use some of those uh, tips from you. Well, and, exactly. We could talk about hair care and skin care. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, so you're doing the stage manager, you're doing these corporate events, but then all of a sudden you're, what, what launched you into scenic? Well, um, it, sort of in my theater capacity, uh, I had a, a, an aptitude with uh, technology. So, um, and I had a very fortunate event happen from my internship at Playwrights Horizons, where I was invited to work as the assistant production manager. So I had this sort of overarching production manager, and that person was also responsible for sound. Right. So I had sort of a sound design role, production manager role uh, in a staff position there and get this sort of corporate thing going on. And somehow these two things merged into uh, an introduction to Wendell Harrington and the world of projection. So I went, uh, I transferred from Playwrights Horizons and I went to work at Wendell's studio, ostensibly as her office manager originally. And then over time, I was able to work as a design assistant and after about three or four years there, it was time to leave Wendell's studio, and I began to go out on my own as a projection designer. And this was around the time that projection designers were starting to get a lot of attention, sort of late 90s, beginning early 2000s, so on and so forth. And the union, USA, was beginning to look at projection designers uh, as a possible category. So I had a conversation with uh, Cecilia and some of the other uh, union representatives at that time. And I was in a very uh, interesting position because I was able to walk into the union office uh, having been offered a Broadway position as an associate for uh, working with John Arnone as a set designer mm-hmm. and pick up a contract as an assistant scenic designer. Even though my primary responsibility was to work with the projections, it's like now I was uh, introduced to the world of scenic design. So that's basically how it started. And I worked very hard to uh, adopt that into my own role as well. Right. Now, John Arnone, he did, was this Jersey Boys you're talking about? No, John Arnone was, uh, I, well, I, I mean, I sort of knew of him from his uh, set design for Tommy. Right. But uh, uh, John and I worked together very closely on a production called Lennon, which was uh, about. Oh, that's right. Yes. Right. So I worked with John on Full Monty because he did our sets for the Full Monty. Yeah, so from with the projection giant, so let's talk a little bit about, I mean, because we talked about scenic and then we talk about projection, and, and there's sort of two different categories. There's also different categories for scenic, like unit sets, uh, you know, for our listeners, unit sets, multi-unit uh, multi, uh, sets. Explain a little bit to my listeners what, what the difference is and, and how you guys work to design for different things like that. Well, just in the talking about scenographically, it's, uh, you know, often when you walk into a theater and we're doing, uh, there can just be the establishment of just one environment uh, that doesn't really change. And that's a unit set. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might be a bar, it might be a home, it might be something like that. Uh, An example of a good unit set is going to be something like... uh, Death of the salesman. When you go into a, that sort of environment, you're going to probably see a unit set 
that has like areas once. areas of acting. Right. Right. Once was like that. We're just exactly. was in that bar. Right. Exactly. Right. So our. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Iceman Comet. Was, like was Cats considered a unit set? That's a good question. Uh, it probably, that might be a unit set with what they call phases or stages because it has different elements that come in and interact. Right. Um, and then you get into something like Drowsy Chaperone, which is certainly not a unit set because we go from locale to locale to locale to locale, you know, in and out of the apartment into these other grandiose sort of things. So that's a, a multi-phase sort of environment or multi-set sort of structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and in the world of projection, it's like we sort of have a, a different sort of, there's two concepts that are kind of going there too. One is sort of this idea of, a scenographic solution that's basically supporting what's happening with the scenery, like you might have seen in the recent revival of Les Mis, or if you saw Finding Neverland, or if you saw something like that, where you, the video projection is there to enhance a lot of what's going on scenographically. And then you might see another production where the video projection is there to do effect. Right. Uh, so it's like, so there's, there's two kinds of worlds there, and a lot of people are drawn into projection from a lot of different fields, whether they come from lighting or film or scenery. So there's a, it calls to a lot of different people. Right. Now, yeah, it's, it's interesting. We did a show called Burley Grimes, a little off Broadway show, which um, most of the projections for that was video and, and like cartoon and video and stuff like that. Um, but then we, when we did things like La Boheme or Carmen, those were definitely scenic elements and projections and the color tones for those scenic and those sets were different because you had different um purposes for the projections can you talk about a little bit about that right so with burley grimes it's like we basically had a we had a scenic area that was uh, above the proscenium where the projections would take place so that was basically um and used interstitially so that basically became a, a storytelling place that was outside of the show Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was one element where we basically tried to recapture and tell the story of the entire show within 90 seconds and on those screens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but the rest of the time, it was there to just sort of support in a framing environment what was happening with the set. The set, again, in that particular situation, again, a unit set that didn't really change from locale to locale, but the visual elements allowed us to imagine we were either in the office or at the club or it was, you know, the office was closed, the office was open, that's your time of day kind of thing. I think we had a large clock that sort of helped us establish that. So, uh, again, that just sort of helped the audience understand where we were in the audience. And we also had some some on-set things there with uh, some monitors that right. basically gave some and told much information, but they just had some graphic in color. Okay, let's go back and let's talk about the monitors because uh, that broke up in five, four, three, two. Additionally, with Burley Grimes on the set, we had some monitors which also provide video content. But again, this was more of an effect and not really uh, information, but it just provided color and movement in conjunction with uh, Jeff's lighting. Um, when we worked together on the operas, uh, that was a different scenographic solution altogether. So at the Madison, we have uh, a little bit of limitation in our where we can put scenery. So 
often we in our my conceptual designs will have uh, planar elements that really don't have a lot of detail. And I will design walls that are intended to be projected on. And I will use the video as a scenographic element there and use that to basically let those walls give us different locales with the imagery. Right. And just basically by moving the shifting the walls 10 feet one way or the other, it, you can actually establish a different locale and it actually looks like we're in a completely different set. Sure. So if the walls come together and we project an interior, then, you know, we're in a cafe. And if the walls come apart and we project two buildings, now we're in, in a street with a, you know, alleyway in between. Um, right. And we've, we've tried a couple of different solutions depending upon what sort of production we're working on and whether that's a wall or a cube or, you know, just our walls at an angle. We, you know, we look for some different solutions for different uh, projects as we've gone through. Correct. I mean, one one of the most brilliant things I felt like we did, or that you did for me, was our West Side Story in concert. Now we had a sixty-piece orchestra on stage. We had dancers running through the orchestra. They were just in front, but yet we had a stagnant. We had six panels. You know. Uh, sort of telescoping in and a back wall and the brilliance of the projections really took transported us into these different scenes and these different areas and, and everything can you talk a little bit about that sure so again you know when we think about the theatrical space um, or the, the proscenium space that you have there at the Madison theater and and this is uh it's 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 a vernacular in the sense that it's a it's a box that we're looking into. We don't often get to play with the levels very often, but in West Side Story we did. We were able to elevate and have uh, the band on another level, and we had a the walkway level, and it made sense to me to go ahead and fill the entire uh, box of the theater that we could see with panels and areas that we could actually take projection. And, uh, and that gave a look to the space that we don't normally see when we're looking at the Madison theater. Um, frequently, when we look at the Madison, it's this deeply raked uh, house for the audience, and we're looking down. We're looking down at the floor, and we're looking down at the performers, and we're not really taking in the scope of how tall the space really can be. But in that particular scenic solution, because we had so much stuff in the air, and imagery in the air and all of those levels, we got this volume of information and it really felt like we were in a city. Right. And I felt, you know, that, you know, there was a lot of activity everywhere that we looked. Right. We actually flew out everything and we could actually see all the way to the, to the rails and the walls and everything. I mean, we really opened up the space and it became a huge space for us. Right. And it, it really showed off the, uh, the interior of the theater and how it works and uh, also the, the volume and, and how just how large that space is. Yeah. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your, some more of your Broadway work. Like you worked on Jersey boys. You also did ghost on Broadway. Um, talk about the, you know, my, my theater has one projector. Now, when you do Broadway, they have multiple projections and, and talk about the complexity of doing something like that. Sure. So uh, Jersey Boys was an interesting situation in that it started with projection uh, and with multiple projectors. I think we had six or eight when we first set up the show for Broadway. Um, 
several on the rail that were projected forward. We had some that were backstage that were uh, attuned to certain screens that flew in and out. And as the show became successful and made money, we were able to actually transfer that over and get rid of the projectors altogether. And we went over to another technology, which was LED. And LED is very similar to the, the signs that you might see in Times Square or when you're driving down the road, you might see the brilliant sign. So the LED technology is very similar to uh, what you might see on a billboard when you're driving down the highway or those, you know, those big electronic signs that you yes. know, give you all that information. Um, we wanted that sort of technology in Jersey Boys to begin with. We just couldn't afford it. So as the show began to make money, we actually took the projectors out. We put the LED in. Uh, and, and that emissive product actually worked better for us in terms of state space and gave us that brilliant look that we were actually after all along. Um, Ghost, same idea, but that had uh, a, a whole set made of LED strips of material. Uh, they were offset very much, very similar to uh, your uh, blind behind you, so that they actually had a, a strip of LED and then a negative space and a strip. And that allowed the audience to see through the wall when they weren't on. And when they were on, it gave the impression of a, a full LED wall because the lights were so bright. And then in addition, we also had projections as well on top of uh, to project onto the set and onto different places. Uh, so when you have more resource, like you might have in a Broadway show, then you're going to have more equipment and you're going to try more things. Right. And and basically that uh, that Broadway stage is frequently a petri dish for a designer to say, let me use this, let me use that, and and especially for a designer like myself, it's like I've used every Broadway show to move the technology forward. It's like that's what happens every time we try to do a show in that way. Um, and once we have done that, it's like then the responsibility comes, okay, now we need to recreate this for a tour. We need to recreate this for a second company or something like that. Then it, we sort of pare it down to what can be the most efficient way to do this. But that, that an affordable way. Uh, well, a, a producer might put it that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, well, but uh, you know, uh, again, what's going to take up less space in, uh, in a touring situation or what's going to, again, be the most efficient or the easiest to operate or that, that sort of, those are some of the considerations that go into um, the designer thinking in addition to, of course, budget. Right. When I was talking with Ed last week, we were talking about the challenges, lighting designers and projectionists, um, you know, you know, it's not conflict, but they, they, they have to work together very carefully because the lighting designer can either wash out your projections or vice versa. If the projections are too bright, they can't light the actors well enough. And that's all we do is see these projections on the actors. You know, what are the challenges for you working with, you know, when you're talking with lighting designers, when you're talking to, uh, you know, scenic and directors and stuff, you know, what are those issues? Well, it's interesting. It's like we all have our peer groups that we really align ourselves with. And I align myself, obviously, very closely with lighting designers because I need them to be on my side. Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, directors as well, to a certain degree. But the, uh, the lighting designer and I really need to be in tandem in terms of understanding not only that 
what you're talking about, that idea of visibility uh, and when the lighting should take over the projection or when the projection needs to be established, mm-hmm. but also in terms of just uh, the mood and the color and the tone that we're setting, uh, the projection is giving a lot of visual information in terms of the color palette and shape and where the beam is coming from and so on and so forth. So uh, a lot of times the the way that the light works from projection is not necessarily the way that we want light to be working in the space. So mm-hmm. that also turns into a situation, again, where if we have multiple projectors, we might play with putting projectors in different locations so that we can actually emulate more of what the lighting designer would like. So let's have a projection that comes from the side or from the front quarter or something like that so that we can actually get a different shadow profile from the projection when it does hit the actor. That's sort of thing. So in in a big show like that. That that was a big... So uh, that placement of the projector was uh, an important consideration when they did the Broadway production of uh, Into the Woods, for example. And the giant was represented by a projection shadow. Right. But rather than put the projection shadow on center, where the normal projection designer might say, hey, I want my projector to be in the middle and shine forward, there was a compromise and a, and a very intentional position of moving the projector away over towards house right so that the shadow, both from the light of the projection and the shadow of the giant, would appear to be coming from offstage. Right. That's that, that. That's a really cool effect. In, in a Broadway show or in a big show with, like you said, when you have a Petri dish, you know, do a lot of these decisions made during tech or is it made prior to that? I mean, is this all planned out saying, oh, we're going to need the projector here and there and there? Or do we say, we need another projector, we need to move the projector here? Well, I, again, it's the, the excitement of being able to bring your project to a Broadway stage usually invokes a lot of design ideas and things that you want to try, again, time and money permitting, in your Broadway execution. So what you want to do is you want to set up your gear and your system so that you have the capacity to try all of these things when the time comes in rehearsal. So uh, you may have a design meeting where you say, we're not sure if this is going to work, but we're going to try to do X, Y, Z. You know, we're going to have uh, this piece of scenery is going to come out and we're going to project an eyeball on it and it's going to look around and glare at the audience or whatever it is, if we're doing our whatever particular project that is. Um, maybe we didn't do that in our our initial project, but we're going to certainly try it this time. So we do everything that we can in our power to make sure that in our tests and in our uh, setups that we think it's going to work and we get all the equipment ready to go. And that becomes, again, our Petri dish, but we really don't know until, you know, for sure, until we get to that moment in rehearsal and it comes up and we turn it on. And then of course it's a little bit of a dialogue and a little bit of a, uh, you know, a discussion about like, Hey, can we have a little, uh, can it, that piece rise up a little higher or can the lights come down a little more or what makes this work a little better? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. Right. And have you ever had major fails like major things where you say, okay, we just got to move this completely. The only, uh, you know, the major fail that I can remember recently, uh, and this has actually been quite some time is we had a challenge when I was working as an associate on Annie 
to project on um, a Venetian curtain. Uh, the, the enemy of projection is high contrast. And if you're familiar with the Venetian curtain, you know, it, it's, it swags of material, exactly. And it basically has depth. So when it's lit, it's lit on the front side. And of course, it has these receding areas of darkness. And we tried projecting on it, but of course, it breaks up. So because it, it only catches the light on the front and then it's, you know, disappears as it falls into the cracks and crevices. Um, and even though we were able to s- sort of make out, but it was, we were trying to project text onto it. So we needed it to be very legible and not just a organic shape or, you know, some sort of smoke or clouds or something like that. So the text, even though we all knew what it would said, it's like, we felt that it was a challenge for the audience to sort of see what that was. So that was, uh, I guess that was a fail. So it's like, you know, we, we tried it. We thought it might work okay, um, but it didn't. It wasn't acceptable. And that turned into something that we said, this is really not going to work on this surface. And we need to use a different surface if we're going to protect this information. Right. That's interesting. And, and you know, what, what ended up happening? Did you stop the projection or did you guys get a new curtain? I think in that particular situation, we used a different surface and we projected that information at a different time so that that curtain could still play at the moment that it wanted to play but we just needed to introduce the uh text information just just prior to that piece coming in right Right. well speaking of curtains and fabrics i mean you use fabric a lot in your design i've seen it and uh you project through it or on it and it completely changes i always think of the scene in carmen uh, when they're traveling and they're outdoors, the evening scene where you wanted movement and you had this beautiful projection on your Navajo white walls, but then you drop some fabric in front of it. So it looked like it was, it was evening. Yes. Um, so talk about your use of fabric and, and, and why that's important to you. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said movement. It's like the idea of, uh, well, obviously, if we're building a wall or something like that, it's like we're not really going to get a lot of uh, movement out of it. And the projection itself can obviously provide a movement, but not in the same way that a, a material can. So when we have a material that has some translucency, not only can it catch the light of the projection and let the projection pass through to the surface behind, which gives it some sort of interesting volume in my mind, which I find to be very, very, you know, now the projection has a depth as opposed to being uh, flat. So when, you know, normally when we're looking at an image, we're looking on the screen and we're used to seeing something that's just, you know, two dimensional. Right. Um, a lot of the imagery that we look at is flat. But when we get into this, the volume of the space and we can project on something that has translucency, now we can have something that we see and then we see again and we see again and we see again. And that gives that projection a different feeling because it has volume and then it, it gives it form. Um, and that is one of the things that I find to be a very interesting and evocative to give uh, light space, you know, to give it mass. In right. this kind of different way. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I really like to play with fabrics of varying opacity. Right. And with the fabrics, I mean, there's different color palettes, obviously, in your projections. I mean, first of all, projections are very cinematic. I mean, it becomes very cinematic where you can change from scene to scene much quicker than 
a multi-set where they have to you know move things on and stuff like that. Projections in a unit set can take you from A to B in seconds. And um, do you think that's an attractive thing for uh, designers, or is it just a necessity nowadays because we're moving so quickly and everybody's you know? It's the way of our storytelling. It really starts with the writing. Um, it, it, it's because we have grown up in a generation of movies and television, and we are used to seeing our stories being episodic in this way. And it's not unusual for us to imagine, even as we sort of talk, moving from scene to scene to scene. And uh, I worked on one production, I think, that had 51 different locations in it. Uh, which is just kind of, I mean, but, and, and written as a play. I mean, uh, obviously I would think that that would be more of a screenplay than a play, but this was the idea was that we were going to do this 51 locations on stage and projections, of course, provides a wonderful solution for that in the sense that scenery cannot, or, I mean, the, the imagination of, of the audience can certainly do that, but at the same token, it's like the projections really provide an outlet that the director responds to to say, oh, well, this really gives us a, a framework or you know, something to hold on to to say, oh, we're here. Oh, now we're here. Now we're here. Now we're here. And it's a comfort for the creative team and it's a comfort for the performers to, to give that sense of location. Uh, and I think that that is something that they really acknowledge that they really want. And I think it's something that our audiences are really familiar with. And once upon a time, you know, 25 years ago, there was a real fear of like, oh, this is moving too fast or we're going right. dis- to disorient the audience or so on and so forth. But that's that time that ship has sailed. You know, it's like we're we're really used to just watching, you know, and interacting like we are now. It's like through screens. Right. And it, one thing about, we talk about literal projections and we talk about video and stuff, but if you look at um, the dog in the night, those projections actually went inside someone's brain. And so projections can do much more than just tell, you know, they can actually interpret what what's going on in someone's mind or, and, and even I think with Evan Hansen, they do that, dear Evan Hansen. Talk about, talk about that, about that type of, of idea of, of moving in someone's brain. Yeah, I, I didn't do either of those shows. No, but I, I, know did, I did do another show with Cecilia Fredericks where she uh, played uh, an autistic person. And that was exactly the point of the projections was to showcase the mental acuity of someone that has uh, that's on the spectrum. Um, and that's a, precisely what's going on is to say, here is the difference between um, what perceive versus what someone who is on the spectrum might perceive. And that really gives the audience a different understanding of how they are visualizing the world uh, or are taking in the world or understanding the world in that sort of way. And it really gives the audience a, a connection that they don't usually get, you know, because they feel shut out uh, because of the behavior of those, you know, of, of many of those people is very uh, withdrawn. So yeah. it's, and, uh, and that became a very, uh, we did that show over at George Street and that was a very enlightening event in terms of being able to um, adapt and understand what that community is all about. And, uh, and it's really great when we see something like Curious Incident or Dear Evan Hansen or something like that, and where we get that 
interior monologue going on in there. I think that's a wonderful use of protection. No, I do too. I, I, the audience, you know, ends up with a little more empathy or sympathy for, you know, the, the character, or not just the character, but for the the entire community um, that is affected by that. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about was your your installations. And I saw a Pac-Man thing that you did, which was, you know, basically it was three D Pac-Man. It was everybody was surrounded by it. People were laying on the ground. Uh, talk about that type of was that a corporate thing or? Well, that is a, um, that actually ties into a little bit more of my educational work and some of my educational research work that uh, I have been doing with the university. At, um, at FU, FSU, right? Uh, actually, it's at University of Florida, U.S. But, U.S., uh, okay. Yes. Um, but the, um, the environment is called a cave. It's a computer-assisted virtual environment. And what we do is we build a room of projection, um, whether that's emitted or projected or so on and so forth, that allows a group of people to go in and interact with uh, a, a virtual environment, um, as opposed to VR, which is sort of a solo experience, you know, when you put on the headset and of course you're completely immersed and you might interact with other people that are also going through immersion in a different place. It's like, this is a community type of that. And uh, obviously being a theatrical person, it's like, I'm interested in what happens to people in a collaborative space. You know, when it's like, we, what happens when we assemble people together and give them another environment to interact in. Um, so that's what you you were looking at, is it's like, what happens when we put somebody inside of a video game? Or what happens when we <laughs> boost people um, into... It's uh, Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> I, I, sort of, yes, exactly. Or what happens when we, you know, are able to transport them on top of a mountain or onto the ocean or, you know, wherever it is that we want to put them. And uh, we've really been um, having a lot of interest in terms of moving that uh, into not only that sort of exploratory thing, but there's a, there's a corporate interest in that as well. So it's like the idea of visualizing uh, and moving from place to place in a virtual sort of situation. So uh, one of the companies I work with is a security company and they are, they study shoplifting. So they're uh, exactly. So it's like we have worked on virtual recreation of a lot of stores. So, uh, you know, I can basically, go virtually to almost any Walmart in the country and, you know, look around the store with this, in this computer assistant environment, which is kind of interesting. And, and how does that help with shoplifting? I'm kind of curious, what, you know. Well, there's, there's, there's two things. What it does is it, it shows them what's going on in the environment that they're in, in those retail environments. And it also gives them the ability to add computer models of things like, what happens if we add an element here that's not actually physically in the store? So it's not disruptive mm -hmm. to the shopping experience, but it gives the people in the computer cave experience another element to possibly interact with. Wow. So, so they basically, it's like a lab. Right. So, they so they basically can have the semblance of being in the store, but not really be in the store. Right. Now I've seen that you've done major projections on buildings as well, like out exterior buildings and um, talk a little bit about that and the challenges there. I mean, you have to be at night, obviously. Uh, yeah, yes, more and more guests uh, and weather, <laughs> of course, is uh, can be a consideration. Um, the uh, And of course, the permits and uh, power and getting 
putting the projectors where they need to be. Um, I remember we did uh, an installation on the Italian embassy on Fifth Avenue. And we spent a lot of time sort of getting it ready. And we were going to use Hunter College, which is right across the street. And I had been to Hunter College. I had specced out the classroom. I had done all the power. I had done everything. And everybody was on board, except for the fact that they hadn't seen the content. So when the, <laughs> so when the Italians came over, bless their hearts, they had a, um, and you would be interested in this as well, but they had a very, uh, their theme had a, 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 a very strong religious connotation. Now, for some schools, that would be just fine. But for Hunter, they were a little bit hands-off, and they decided at the last minute that it was not appropriate for them to sponsor this event. So suddenly, all of the math and the situations that we had done and the placement and the power and everything like that had to move. And we were able to make a last-minute uh, deal with one of those old sort of New York – I believe it is the New York Club, if I'm not mistaken. It's one of those – you know, uh, posh sort of turn of the century private club sort of mm -hmm. things. And we were able to get one of the rooms up at the top floor and uh, move everything literally across the street and up. But we had a new angle where we had a new situation of like having to figure out the whole thing over again to re reproduce what we wanted to do on the facade of the Italian embassy. Uh, and it happened. And over several nights, so it's over the holiday season, we had just sort of like a uh, a holiday message of you know hope and spirituality that the Italian embassy was able to show on the Saturday. So, I'm curious by moving. I mean, I always think of projections coming from you know from if you if you've designed something and it's coming from straight on, and then you have to shift. 150 feet to the left, do you have to redesign those pers pers perspective? Yes, you do. Um, and the, re the reason for that is because they, especially with this situation, they had digitally drawn in all the shadows and so on and so forth to match the facade. So now we actually had real shadows to contend with because we weren't straight on. We had the, when we move the projector over to the left or the right, it's like, it's actually creating its own shadows from right. not being in the right spot. So we had to compensate for those. Um, and that took, uh, the, the, the Italians, they were up for quite, quite a few hours to make that work. Um, but they, everybody pitched in and they were able to, uh, to get it going. And I, I remember, uh, you know, my response was to go over and basically start the thing up every, every night. The projector was just in this crazy orientation of being like eight feet up in the air. And, you know, we're talking a, a massive <laughs> piece of equipment here that was somehow erected to shoot out of this window at this strange angle and, and make it happen. <laughs> yeah. And it's what, okay. So they are, did they, obviously gave you the source material for that. But when you start a show from the scratch, where do you find the source material? It's not just colors. It's, you know, it's, you know, you have to, you have to find a lot of different things and you bring a lot of humor into your. Yeah, your I do. Uh, so I, I am a, uh, a book person. So it's like, I've been doing this for a while. So I have a, a, a large library of books and materials and things like that, monographs and, uh, pictures and albums and stock material and things like that. Uh, obviously, in this day and age, we have the repositories of 
on the internet that allow us access to a lot, like an enormous volume of imagery, you know, through our museums and so on and so forth. Uh, then there are a couple of places that we look for imagery that are just a little bit unusual, like maybe from a fabric store or on eBay or, you know, so imagery is all around us. It's just a question to be the most appropriate. And that's part and parcel of what the designer is looking for, is looking for that, that image that's going to make a difference. Some designers are filmmakers and they walk around with cameras. So they're going to go and capture and record and find their own imagery. Some designers like myself are people that are going to find other imagery and co-opt it and use it in a different way. Um, and I think that's where you're talking about your humor is that I often will find a picture and use it in a different context. So, <laughs> um, and because I find so many different pictures and I'm not exactly sure which one I, I have, it's like, often there's the opportunity to do a little joke um, from time to time. And, uh, and I'm kind of known for, you know, keeping things, uh, especially technical rehearsals can be a stressful time. So it can be useful from time to time to introduce some levity. Yeah, like Star Wars, Star Wars walkers and, and shadows of those things in the, Exactly right. I, I, I'm uh, working with uh, uh, Jersey Boys, for example. The director was seated almost all the way down at the front row of the theater. I think he was row three or four or something like that. So he could communicate closer with his actors. And our tech table, unfortunately, because we had so many people, um, we were about three quarters of the way, maybe almost, almost all the way at the back of the theater. So, and the director has a god mic. And would basically explain, you know, hey, I want this, I want this, I want this. And, you know, inevitably, wherever you were in the, the room, people would sort of shout out, yes, or, you know, okay, or I'm on it, or that kind of thing, that sort of whatever would happen. So mm-hmm. um, after hearing this for a day, I just made a slide that said, yes, Des, and would basically, anytime he asked a question, we had a hot key and we would just bring it up. And so there was, there was never a no desk slide. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Des. But that way we could uh, we could basically he could just look at the stage and get his answer right away. So it's like it, those sorts of things are uh, you know within our purview to do. Absolutely. But one thing I love about your imagery, I, I want to talk a little bit about your palette that you used for my lava lamp because you used, I mean, you didn't use literal buildings and stuff. I used French paintings, you know, for the street, you know, and it was such a, um, these iconic artwork, you know, to, to display the streets and the, and the avenues and the houses. I mean, was that part of the director's vision or did you bring that to her? Um, we, we discussed it, um, and the, that was with uh, Adrienne. And the the artwork is also of the period of time that we wanted to set the show in. So the artists were contemporaries of what we would have seen if we were looking for photographs of that time. But this was just before the time of photographs, so we really didn't have, uh, you know, photo real photo impressions of what you know paris would have looked like circa 1820 right so you know photography is really showing up in 1840 1850 1860 so using the paintings uh and the of the period seemed to be the appropriate way to 
embody what was going on uh, in, in, a, in a scenographic way. Right. It actually established the time period and established the city. I mean, it was a brilliant, brilliant concept by both of you. I mean, it was it was very and it was sharp and it was beautiful. It was colorful. It added a lot to the to the, the opera. Um, what you know, you work on different things. I mean, operas and, and dance. I think you've done some dance. You've done uh, you've done Broadway. I mean, you know, what what do you like? I mean, what does everything have its own like to it, or you know, they do. They, uh, there's there's different. Um, Different, different types of projects have different types of time that is uh, and time it can be a factor depending upon what we're also busy with in our lives um, so saying yes to a Broadway project is super exciting but that's also a commitment of months. At, at least six months if not eight months to and if it's a hit then that could be another eight months or another year depending upon you know what uh, other permutations it needs to go into. So those, those sorts of things are, are, can be difficult to balance depending upon what's going on. Uh, and then if you're going to work on a dance concert or an event, it's like, yes, you're working on those ahead of time, but maybe that's really only a week on site or something like that. So uh, those could be a little bit easier to get away with if you're committed otherwise to um, another type of contract or another type of job in that sense so it just sort of depends upon what you're already working on or what you've already said yes to and how you're balancing your professional life right and and your teaching life because you have students to uh, that that's responsible for that's relatively new for me it's like i'm just in my third year there but at the same token um and and that seems to be going well and but yes for those nine months it's uh it, there is a little bit of they they, they uh, keep me quite busy, so it's difficult sometimes to say yes to another project while you're busy with the university. Right. Um, a quick question about your students: Do they surprise you? Do they come up and and I mean, I know that when I teach and I work with actors or dancers or something, they bring something new to the table all the time that I go, oh, that's brilliant. Are you finding that with your students that they're creating, you know, it's almost like a, like a Petri dish there too. It's almost like a, a lab. So talk about your students a little bit. Well, the students have, uh, first of all, they have a very different uh, mindset about imagery and that's very, and, and they have a very different uh, attitude about imagery. So the, they think nothing of making video vertical or square or, you know, moving things in a different orientation that I might not instinctively go to, uh, which I find to be super exciting, you know, to see uh, them come up with new aspect ratios and compositions in that sort of way. The students that I work with are are all overachievers. They're all incredibly, I mean, they are. They just really, really, really go for it in terms of what they come up with. So it's like I'm consistently impressed with the quality of work that, you know, it's like my, I set the bar here, and they are always on top of it. So it's like a, that's that's a very exciting environment to work in. One more question: uh, Did you ever have, um, well, you know, like a show or a person or someone who 
inspired you or actually wanted wanted you i mean you said you wanted to be in this ever since high school or grade school or whatever i mean was there a aha moment like this is what i want to do with my life um a couple of aha moments it's like you know i had i was a good student and i went to a good university after graduation but i did not take to it uh i, I was not ready <laughs> to go to college. Uh, I was, I graduated at a young age. I was, you know, I, I was a little slightly advanced in high school, but so I was like a year behind everybody or had, or how, I don't know how you want to look at it, but I was a year younger than everybody else. So sort of jumping into the college experience at 17 years old, um, I was, it was not for me and, and I was not ready for that lifestyle. Uh, and I was not ready for a big campus community and it was not really getting what I wanted to get out of it. And I burnt out very quickly in terms of, you know, taking on too much and so on and so forth. And, uh, I think that, you know, I'll call it a gap year, you know, where you just sort of like stop and reassess yourself. Uh, at that point in time, I called it dropping out. <laughs> <laughs> that was a gap year. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I had to stop. I really did. I could not continue. And I had to reassess what I was doing. And that's what brought me into remembering my high school association and understanding my friends from North Carolina School for the Arts and going and knocking on the door there and saying, hey, what is it to get into this school? And this, I think this is what I want to do. And so you didn't go to North Carolina School of the Arts for the first year before your gap year? No, I, I went to Wake Forest first. Oh. Which is also in the same. It's a great college. Yeah, it's wonderful. I recommend Wake Forest to anybody who wants a quality education. But it was not a good fit for me at seventeen. So I took a year, and then I went to the South Side of Town, and I went to North Carolina School for the Arts, and I knocked on the door and I said, "How do I get in here?" And again, knowing very little, um, they asked me if I would take it seriously, and I said I would. And they, I was an in-state student and independent, and I was eligible, and I enrolled, and I almost immediately failed out, almost, because I had, because <laughs> I had no concept. I had no, I did not know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about uh, loading or technical. You know, I didn't. I didn't. I did, this was all new information for me. But fortunately, it's a school, and you're there to learn, and they are somewhat forgiving to a certain degree if you're trying to apply yourself. And uh, I went from being really a zero to a hero over several years, but it took a while for me to catch on to what was really going on. And, but uh, I was really, really grateful for that education. And I think that that was a big turning point for me in, in just understanding what theater was uh, and, and, and meeting the people that were there at that time, meeting my classmates, understand, meeting the guest artists that came in, that has and then like in terms of understanding oh not only is this something that i'm interested in but this is a career for people this is something that people do and take seriously and it's important oh absolutely so that was uh, an eye-opening moment and then of course i couldn't wait to get out of north carolina and go to new york that was seemed to be the next possible step and then getting to new york it's like i was incredibly fortunate to you know be in a place of change at the right time and be offered a position and move forward from there. And I've, I've had a bunch of angels looking over my shoulder from time to time. So, uh, you know, and I, I 
I can't thank them all, but it's like, uh, you know, Sally Campbell Morris, Hal Binkley, uh, Santo Loquasto, all of these people have really given me incredible opportunities, uh, you know, from, to, to move ahead. Yeah, I think to be successful in this business, everyone has to have those angels or those, those people who just sort of mentor them or just come at the right moment, you know, and, and I always say, you know, it's, I, I've been, I was very fortunate and lucky, you know, with a lot of my jobs and stuff because I had those little angels. So I get that. Um, is there a show in New York that, that just wowed your world that thought, Oh man, I want to be, I want to do scenic or, or anything, or just like I picked the right well, there profession. Was a, profession. There was a, I, I guess the, I had a game changer kind of show. Well, I had a couple of, couple things happen, but the, I think 700 Sundays for me was a game changer show. Um, that was, you know, obviously it was very high profile with Billy Crystal and mm-hmm. him telling the story of his life. Yep. Um, and even though that was, uh, you know, a, quite a sort of a little show that moved from La Jolla to Broadway and, and very much of a personal show and, and of an entity for Billy Crystal himself, the work that happened with that show and the continuation over 10 years that he did right. it, it really uh, brought a new level of experience for me that I was not even aware was possible, you know, to be able to travel with him to Australia or, you know, and do the show there. Or, I mean, even when we first went to, you know, California, I was like, wow, we can go to California to the show. This is cool. Right. <laughs> um, I, I sort of was familiar with it, but the, uh, I guess that was eye-opening that you could have this entity that would continue that people wanted to watch over and over again. So that was, uh, even though he would take a break for, you know, six, eight months and then he would call up and we would all get together and do it again. So uh, that gave me a new piece of information. And then of course, when Jersey Boys became a hit, it's like, that was another sort of, you know, here's lightning in a bottle again. You know, but so that was a, a, a very exciting time to see that progression happen again in my lifetime to see, you know, go from one and then follow through with the next. So certainly very, uh, very cool. Yeah. Uh, my last question is, I always ask people what their dream show would be, but it's hard to say because, you know, an actor can have a dream role or a dream show, you know, lighting designer could say, yeah, I'd love to like this show. But for scenic and projections, you know, is there a project that that you wish would materialize or is there is there something you've been working on or because we know, all know that it can take years for a project from you know from the inkling of an idea to to the stage it could take 10 15 years to actually materialize is there something that you've always wanted to do or work on or even a show if you'd say I would love to design this show for some company I'm a, I'm a pretty good um, audience member. So it's like oh, my suspension of disbelief shoots really high. And I fall pretty much in love with almost everything that I'm working on. So, um, and I'm usually really excited to work on whatever is coming next. Uh, and the, with that idea of uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about our profession is the bad ephemerality, uh, that, that sense of completion, that sense that, we are going to start something and we are going to achieve it. And we, you know, it is going to end uh, and then we're going to start something else. Uh, right. So that, that cycle uh, 
is important to me. It's important to almost every aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. You know, what comes next is, is yes, it's important. Uh, There is a lot of interest, you know, in terms of how the storytelling is done and what the stories are. I just want them to be impactful and important to people. I'm not really sure that it's there's a certain story that I feel that needs to be told or there's one that I feel that needs to be that I want to say, like, oh, this is the one that I want to do. But uh, I, I I think that it's it's the one that's going to resonate, you know, that, that people are going to want to want to see again and again. Right. And basically... Do you, when you get a script, do you, are you visualizing the script as you read it? Or do you read it and then go back and say, okay, let me visualize it? I visualize it usually when I hear about it. So, yes, <laughs> by, the time, by the time I'm reading it, it's like I've, I've probably already got some concepts in mind and I'm uh, trying to apply into the script, hoping mm-hmm. that they'll take. Um, and, uh, and then I have to slow down. And usually stop and put my ideas aside and then really look and see what the text is asking for. Uh, that's, uh, that's the responsible designer way. So the, you know, there's the, the Michael Clark, oh my gosh, I really want to do this. And I think maybe that's what you're talking about with your previous question. It's like, what do you want to do? It's mm-hmm. like, um, I do come at it with well, every time I hear about a project or I start a new project, I will develop a set of ideas that are usually based upon whatever I think is cool or happening in the world today. Like, for example, and then it could be just a very simple sort of uh, concept. But for example, when we were working with Dracula the musical, obviously, you know, there was the idea of blood, but blood is not enough for me. But liquid, everything liquid, everything moving, everything bubbling all the time you know, was a, was an important consideration for me. So this whole idea of, you know, everything gelatinous and liquid and so on and so forth, that, that was a very um, important factor in the design. And it was also very hip in terms of what we were seeing, not only in the show, but in the culture. It's right. like every, everywhere you looked, you saw like this kind of like liquidity effect that was happening in 2000 and whatever it was for we were doing this. <laughs> So, uh, so it's kind of like I'm tapped into what's what's happening, what's what's cool right now, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what I'm trying to put into every show. And then, and then I have to stop and go and do the responsible thing of saying like, well, what is the show going to be? And then talk to my director and talk to my collaborators and find out what is what is the responsible thing, and then see if there's room. For that that inkling of a fresh idea that I might have to see see if I can insert it somewhere, and if not, then I'll just make a joke and do that in tech. <laughs> have you ever been in a situation where your what you would love to do has just been, you know, the director has just said it's a great idea, but I want to take it this way instead? Oh, absolutely, frequently, yes. It's like it's it's just an idea. It's not. It's and it's something that you cannot have. Um, possession of it's just you just need to but having that idea I think is an important thing for a director to hear uh, you have a concept in your hold hold shake your head a little bit 
Okay. The, go back to the concept of the director, that, that line. Sure. Five, four. So many times my concept won't, won't fly with the director, but they still appreciate the idea that I have a concept for that. You know, they want to know that I have an idea to bring to the table uh, so that we can communicate about what the proper uh, idea is going to turn out to be. Right. Yeah, I love I love working with you because I usually don't even see what you're doing. I mean, very. I just love walking away and just seeing what you create on our palettes. Um, very rarely do I say, is this what, you know, I'll come to you and I'll say, is this what you landed on? <laughs> or is this the final product? And then you'll change it. You'll say, nope, I guess it's not. I'm just playing. But um, well, that's, that's usually a subtle clue that you're not happy. <laughs> well, I'm always happy with your work, but it's, it's fun because I like the surprises. It's like with an actor and it's like with Ed's lighting. Uh, and with your projections and your scenic, you know, I have a different concept in mind, but yet you all bring the actor, the dancer, the designer, the projectionist, you guys all bring a different concept to it that makes me real rethink and real and re realize the show in a different way. And I think it makes me as, as a director or as a choreographer, better director because it helps me out of being stuck with one, you know, one vision. And I start seeing different visions and it helps me create and helps us create, you know, a unique show. Uh, absolutely. And you, I mean, you know, that saying, it's like, you know, it's a good idea if we both have it, you know, right. that, that, that sort of thing. And um, the, that situation, and, and that's the power of collaboration as well. It's like when you're hearing, you know, X from this person and X from that person and X from that person and Y from that person and X from this person and Y from that person. It's like you can begin to ascertain that uh, it might be X, you know, right. it's like that, that, that's probably the way to go. Even though Y is still a choice, it's it might be this is the way that we want to do this. Right. And, and we all know that once you're in previews, things can change on the dime. You know, people people go and say, this is a great idea. You get it up in front of an audience. And all of a sudden, it's not working. You go, okay, it was a great idea, but we have to change it. Thank God we've got why. Let's go. <laughs> Thank God we have why. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's leave it at that. Um, I'm really excited to have had this conversation with you. Um, I want to thank Michael Clark. Uh, Michael will be back actually at the Madison Theater designing this summer. He's doing our carousel and concert, also our All Shook Up and the Squirrel Screams. Plus, he'll be doing Barbara Seville and Elf the Musical, Elf the Musical, which is going to be our Christmas show this year. We have you coming to the Madison there quite a bit this year. I'm excited. That'll be fun. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of time. So anyway, I hope everyone stays safe and healthy, and we hope to see you here. Until then, we'll keep the seats warm for you. Bye-bye now. I want to thank producers Kathleen the Machine Marino, Eileen Swagger Sweeney, and the VP of Advancement Edward the Terrific Thompson. Technical support and editing by Calvin the Great Guevara Flores, graphic designs by Francis Bouncing Bonnet, and Sarah Prancing Palazzolo.